to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. Artificial intelligence and machine learning have been a concept since the late 1950s, with the term AI being coined in 1956. Since that time, AI has been in the public consciousness and often takes the form of a machine uprising. Look no further than films like Westworld, any version of The Terminator, or Ex Machina, for examples. However, in the past several months, the real power of AI has become mainstream news, much of that being driven by the release of ChatGPT, which already has over 100 million active monthly users, making it the fastest growing consumer application in history. Our guest today, Adam Goldberg, is no stranger to AI generally, and all the amazing achievements coming from OpenAI, ChatGPT's parent company. Adam is the head of Azure OpenAI Enablement and the go-to-market team, and was previously an account director for the go-to-market team at OpenAI. Prior to his work at OpenAI, Adam was a director of data and AI solutions at Microsoft, and spent the early part of his career in multiple roles with Cisco. Years from now, this may end up being the most fascinating episode of this podcast to revisit because AI is in such a stage of exponential growth. So we're so fortunate to have Adam as a guest who's on the forefront of that evolution in AI. So we hope you all enjoy Adam's conversation with Adam Goldberg. Welcome to the Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Grossman. With me today is OpenAI's Adam Goldberg. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Adam. Good to be here. <laughs> Adam, Adam, doctor, doctor. This is a cold Caddyshack reference. Yeah, Adam, so it's great to have you. Looking forward to the conversation. You and I have talked a lot off air, so to speak, about OpenAI and generative intelligence, but we want to start with your career path from the beginning. So can you kind of walk us through your career and tell us how you got to OpenAI? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. I've been in different forms of enterprise sales for over two decades now. I I, uh, I think I can look back and say that I definitely like early markets. I don't think I knew that at the time. I started in the uh, in the phone system space right at the birth of enterprise voice over IP in the year 2000. Um, that was a little bit of like fortuitous timing and luck, but it afforded me an opportunity to learn like networking and some of the basis that became you know core to technology. Did that for a while. Then I moved into what we now know as like the IoT world, doing smart buildings, smart cities. Like that was that was super cool. Led me to um, I was at Cisco at the time. I left Cisco and went to a startup company to run sales there. And although that company wasn't quite what was advertised, I learned a ton about the buildings world and just like the inner to how things got connected and that. That led me to um, join this company kind of focused on like modern DevOps and building applications. And I had this interesting focus of like where the physical and the digital world meets. Um, and, and you know, as IoT was becoming like a mainstay. And um, again, I was like super lucky. It was like the, the birth of like containers and container orchestration and all these like kind of core technologies to enterprises. Um, I spent a bunch of time there. The company went IPO. It was um Successful, maybe not as as successful as we all would have liked, um, but it was a great experience all around as a company named Pivotal. And that afforded me the opportunity to come to Microsoft, where I spent five years on the Azure team. So I joined in 2016, and although Azure had been around for a while, it was kind of like the enterprise readiness of Azure at that time that was like so exciting. So um, it was off to the races, a bunch of IoT stuff, a bunch of big data stuff, a little bit of AI stuff. Spent about five years there, and that's when I kind of started to observe OpenAI as an outsider. And now you you look back, it's been almost a year and a half 
that I'd been at OpenAI. And when I left Microsoft, a lot of my coworkers were like, why are you leaving Microsoft, which was a, which is a great place. So it was a great place. And, um, you know, now all of a sudden, uh, for the last couple of months, they realized why I, why I did what I did. It's almost like you hadn't left Microsoft now, given the connection between Microsoft and OpenAI. We'll get into that later in the podcast. But I wanted to start with something because our audience typically more entering their career, more student oriented. You talked about early technology and early spaces and then how that was you identified that as something in early markets. Can you just provide more detail about what you mean about early markets and why that was interesting to you? Yeah, like I'm you you try to be like self-aware about yourself, like markets that are like extremely mature and are like commoditized that like it's just machinery like um like my my father for example who had a, a great very long sales career was a paper salesman he sold paper to printers and granted the world has shifted around a little bit where paper is not quite the thing it was anymore that was like a very mature market and he did really well and had a customer base that he serviced over a long period of time and you know all all was very good i i I was honest with myself, like, what do I like? And I like some of the variety of things, what was really interesting. And again, a little bit of luck uh, in joining the, the uh, like a telephony integrator. This company doesn't even exist anymore uh, called Phone Extra. They sold phone systems, but it was the timing of voice over IP coming into the enterprise and data networks and phone systems kind of all merging together. It was, um, there was a, you know, in, this, in the sales world, there's a saying, you know, uh, telling isn't selling, except when you're in early markets, educating customers around what it means for them, and what the impact is, um, is so much a part of it because people are looking to get smart on it. So they make smart decisions. They're looking to be able to communicate the value proposition stuff like that. And I was always really um, good at bridging the gap of business value and technical value and being able to speak that whole stack. So um I was, it was, you know, like they say, there's no such thing as luck. Like, I think there is luck, but it's kind of like what you do with it. So um, when I went to this company, they, um, everyone that was successful there, you know, had one or two big customers. And for me, I saw that as like bad business continuity. I went, I wanted to have good 10 or 15 customers. And the visual I give you is I was like a plate spinner. I'd run over and spin the plate here and spin the plate there. And you incubate a lot of opportunities. And I'd been there five years. And by my last two years there, I had grown to be the number one salesperson. And, uh, um, that just allowed me to have scale. And that's ultimately what led me to, to Cisco. Um, but I, I, from then on, like I looked, I was always kind of looking around the corner as to what was next. I think I had this like weird, irrational fear of like waking up and finding myself in a mature market and wanting to be in control that I did things that I found mentally stimulating because you're going to work hard. You're going to work a lot of hours, whatever you're doing, like you should enjoy what you're doing. So I kind of self-disrupted myself and left the collaboration world after 10 years of, of at Phone Extra and Cisco and uh, um, and went to go do these this IoT stuff, smart cities, smart buildings. Um, and just like I realized I like to learn new things and like to meet experts and, and stuff. So I've found myself repeating that pattern over and over again. So like I think the message I would give is like find, you got to find something that like when you get out of, get out of bed every morning, like you are personally interested in. You spend too much time each day, each week, each year doing a job. Like you better love what it is because um, you're going to be doing it for a long time. For me, it's 23 years and I'm only like halfway through my career. There's a lot there and I definitely want to get into it. But one of the core things that you mentioned particularly is developing sales strategy. A lot of jobs, particularly when you're more entry level in the sports industry are sales oriented, whether that's ticket sales or a variety of other sales roles or marketing roles. So can you talk about how you know, you you mentioned how you became the number one salesperson. 
but obviously coming from a relatively early part of your career, how were you able to do that? You mentioned having multiple clients, but what are some of the kind of the key learnings you got and what do you think could be impactful as somebody starting a sales career? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I still today reference back to like the two things and it's, it's actually, it's like normal human nature things. Like, I guess I should like, you know, give my parents some credit, right? Like being like a nice person, right? Like saying please and thank you. It makes you memorable. There's so many people who like take that for granted, but um, the, the simple fact, like earlier in my sales career that I did what I said I was going to do literally put you ahead of 80% of every other salesperson uh, that I came into at that time. Like just saying, like looking a customer in their eye, in the eye and say that you were going to do something or saying that I don't know. And then telling them that you're going to follow up and then give a strong follow-up. And sometimes saying, I don't know. And following up with them gave you like two or three more at bats with them versus having the answer in the meeting and then wherever things go from there. So in some cases it was just actually just, um, I think salespeople a lot of times get like a negative stereotype, right? Like mm-hmm. as far as like, you know, people, you know, maybe have had a negative experience at, you know, with a salesperson at a car dealership, right. And they think all salespeople stink, you know, so it's really, um, identifying, being able to understand like the problem that the customer is looking to solve. Um, being able to ask the right questions to tease out what they're actually looking for versus kind of what they think they're looking for and kind of bottoming that out and then just doing what you say you're going to do, whether that's um, a proposal, explaining, getting them a reference, like whatever it is um, there. I, I still passionately believe that just being like a good person and following up will put you ahead of most people, the technical knowledge, the, the fact whether you have a good product or a bad product, those are things like that, um, like you can and can't control for, right? Like you got to pick the right company you're going to work for in the right domain with the right value proposition. That's, you got to do your analysis to make the right decision there. But then at the end of the day, like what can you can control? You can control how you interact with people and, you know, your timeliness and stuff like that. Like it's still notable today when when I'm working with peer salespeople and they don't um, they don't do what they say they're going to do. And I can imagine what it's like as a customer, let alone someone who's trying to partner with them. Yeah, I think that's a really good advice in terms of making sure you follow through on exactly what you're saying. But one of the things you brought up, and I do want to dive into this a little bit more, also is teasing out what people actually want versus what they say they want. Can you talk about how you think about that and how that's something that you're able to do successfully? Because that is one of the tricky things, particularly from a sales perspective. Yeah. And I think part of it comes like with confidence of understanding your market and understanding how people buy. So the interesting thing and what's sometimes fun in early markets is actually figuring those things out. When you have a mature market, like it's yeah. all well understood and it's your job to just execute on the playbook that someone, you know, 10 levels above you, um, you know, figured out. It got handed down. You just do that. You do that well and you'll be financially rewarded or whatever. Um, I think in the earlier markets, like I had found, like it was up to you to figure it out. You had to experiment, you had to try different ideas. And the key was finding the right customers, not just who wanted to buy what you had, but actually they were like equally as passionate about it and they could communicate to you what they were looking for. And like, I look at like the open AI world right now, like, and obviously this is, we're in this like weird tornado of excitement around technology, (laughs) um, but I'm only focused right now on people that want to build. And that sounds like snobby and it actually, you know, felt weird at first because before, you know, working at Microsoft, you know, and it was, a, you know, even though I was selling innovative technology, like you're a big go to market. It's like you wanted the cust- you wanted any customer to buy what you had to sell here. Like we only want people that are ready to build and want to go big. Um, so it's it's um, 
it's fun from that standpoint, kind of understand it, like teasing out to understand like, well, okay, if these people are ready to build, they have a clear view of something that they want to build. Right. And like in my world now, and I'll kind of like, I'll reverse, I'll kind of go backwards in time. Like right now, it kind of bump in the AI world, it, it bottles down, it, it bottoms out to two, like two types of things or two patterns and they can both intersect, but it's like, are people looking to do like a next generation business process optimization? Are they looking to use this technology to augment business processes? Or are they looking to use AI to deliver like a magical end user experience where AI, like, you know, they just have like a really good feeling. And I always use the example for magical AI, and this is not like what, what I do currently, but um, like you ever have to submit expenses and use like an expense app where you scan the receipt when it gets everything right, and all you have to do is press send. You don't have to key anything in. It gives you like that nice warm feeling, like that type of thing. Um, you know, like, so you have those two buckets. And then sometimes they can overlap. We have like a magical experience that then flows through to some backend process that now AI provides a level of intelligence to do something. That um, That's like, that's super fun um, to talk about and explain about. But at the end of the day, like what are the customer's business processes? What are they looking to solve for? Um, and it's interesting because, you know, I just spent the the weekend out at the NBA Tech Summit and the, the All-Star Game. Um, and it says much about the fan experience and maybe even more so, you know, about the fan and uh, the partner experience and how they interact as it is on looking to streamline the back end of the way that their operation runs. Um, so kind of teasing out like where, you know, where does a customer, um, you know, if you're talking to a senior leader, they're going to have an idea of the top three or top five pain points, right? And if I could solve one or two of them or participate in that, then all of a sudden what my technology can do becomes like a means to an end. There's actually someone who is willing to and wants to understand what their problem is and, and try to solve it. Yeah, again, a lot there. We were kind of working through your career, but OpenAI is obviously, like you said, is kind of a tornado of excitement right now. So let's just get into OpenAI first. We kind of went in through some of the use cases. You divided the use cases, which I think is really helpful. And I would like to go example of both of those use cases like you talked about. But first, can you just talk about like what OpenAI is and maybe even in the context of how even from a company perspective, different from and now has this strong relationship to Microsoft. You were talking about early markets. The Microsoft, which was not necessarily early market, all this stuff you were working on was early for Microsoft, but maybe it would be just helpful to like, let's baseline, this is what open AI is, this is what it does, and then how it relates to some of the things in your past career and how, and then we can kind of take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, for a while now, there has been discussions of like machine learning and then deep learning, and there's been all these different things around uh, computers adding different capabilities there. And, and OpenAI was formed at the end of 2015, um, originally solely as like a not-for-profit research company. We've evolved our um, our structure a little bit, but it's actually more similar than different. Um, they were in like research mode for a while uh, before any anything commercially was delivered. Um, but we're focused on this idea of artificial general intelligence or AGI and um, delivering um, you know, it's, it's going to be a journey to get there. It's not um, it's not like that is necessarily right around the corner. I think there's an interesting discussion around the path, the path to get there and what happens on the way. Right. Um, and not just when you get there. I think like a lot of the exciting stuff is on the journey to get there. And one day we're just going to uh, arrive there. But but OpenAI um, set out on different like technical paths to figure out how they're going to build this artificial general intelligence that would really like I think the simplest way, like the way I would explain it to, to my parents is that we want to be able to give like superpowers 
to to people and whether those are individual consumers or those are to employees to to give them a a, a set of capabilities and lift um, that they've never seen before. And there's lots of other definitions of what what um, of how OpenAI does what it does. Um, it's still the parent company is still a not for profit company, and um, we are hyper focused on making sure this technology that we invent ultimately gets distributed evenly um, around the world um, and to different levels. And, you know, it's not all about like, we were very specifically don't want one corporation to hold all of it, right? So um, although today I live inside of a for-profit entity inside the not-for-profit um, and you need to do that to create this technology and bring it to market, when certain things are accomplished, right? That the ultimately the open source, the the not-for-profit company will will um, when we reach AGI, will kind of assume control back of the technology to make sure that it is, you know, widely available. The partnership with Microsoft, when when OpenAI was first formed, um, there was different commitments from different investors at the time, at the founding of it, um, with our CEO Sam Altman and and Greg Rockman and Ilya, our chief scientist. Um, there was a whole core group of people, and at the time, it included Elon Musk. Uh, Elon, he's no longer involved, hasn't been involved for a while, but the idea was originally to make this a not-for-profit and do a bunch of open-source stuff, and I think it became very clear that the the economics, the computers that needed to be built and the, the data that needed to be acquired and all the different uh, aspects, um, it was going to be extremely capital-intensive, and being a pure not-for-profit was not reasonable. Um, so at that time... Um, the structure changed, and in 2019, Microsoft um, very strategically invested a billion dollars into OpenAI. And that was a form of um, cash and credits and stuff. We were going to be running on Azure to train Microsoft Azure to train our models and to ultimately run our models. So it was a, a really interesting partnership because at the end of the day, OpenAI needed a secure repeatable, scalable supply chain to get compute and a partner who uh, had the geographic footprint and most importantly, like the philosophical alignment around trust and safety, responsible AI, like we found um, a tremendous amount of commonality um, and, that, and a lot of credit to both Satya, the CEO of Microsoft, as well as Kevin Scott, the CTO, who very early on you know, um, made a really big bet. I don't want to say bet his career because who am I to say that, but like made an enormous bet that now looks, you know, yeah. uh, hindsight, you know, quite brilliant. So me as a person who at the time was at Microsoft observed that billion dollar investment and then subsequently observed some of the fruits of that partnership that came out. And that that's what connected a bunch of dots for me, um, like that this place was really interesting for a variety of reasons. Adam shared with me a great article in Stratechery, which was talks about with Kevin and Sam and kind of how Microsoft went through this journey with OpenAI and definitely something you should check out and we can include that in our show notes. But before we, again, there's a lot there once again, so we'll hopefully get through all of it. But the first starting out, again, this is an audience that's just learning about kind of machine learning, deep learning, AGI. From your perspective, how would you describe like, what is machine learning? What is deep learning to start out with? Yeah, so... Um... You hear people use the term models, right? You have these models right. <laughs> traditionally, um, you have to be built to do different things. And I think what you would find is um, you could build an individual model um, like that a machine learning engineer or a data scientist would be able to construct a model using some, you know, probably some open source technology or getting something from a cloud vendor or a provider uh, to either build a model or to customize a model to be like really good at a specific thing, right? Um, 
what AGI looks to do, the G there is is general. And this idea that you want to create a set of capabilities that are general and broad-based and that you can literally generalize things. It can learn, like in our case, it can learn one language and have the ability to generalize over to learn other languages, even though it didn't inherently learn, wasn't trained on that language specifically. Maybe there was like a little bit of information there. So I think what's really What's interesting is we present ourselves in two in two ways to to organizations because like well, what we want to do is we want to um, we want to like allow customers to not have to focus on the undifferentiated heavy lifting that there is in building these types of models. So um, uh, OpenAI is known for things like GPT three or Chat GPT. The um, the P part is pre trained. And the T is transformer, but like pre-trained, we do a bunch of pre-training. We infuse a bunch of knowledge and then emergent capabilities are born out of that. And then we present that to you in the form of an API. So you are really hyper-focused on what business problem you're looking to solve. And it's actually much more like software development and product manager focused. What do you want to build? And then just properly calling the API to do it. Than building the model. It doesn't mean you don't need a machine, need a machine learning expertise or data science expertise, but much less because you're not building the model, you're just consuming it. So we're in the business of APIs, whether you go to openai.com or the Azure OpenAI service. Um, and sometimes people want to get stuff as just another cloud service. So that's where Azure is great. It's inside your Azure environment or openai.com, which is a like a SaaS AI service. You just call out to us, we're on the internet, like like Stripe or Twilio or or any other service. And then more recently, and um, probably even the impetus for us you know, talking today was like the birth of ChatGPT back at the, uh, the end of November, that really, in some cases, the models that power that, um, predecessors of that model have been around for over a year. Um, and when I, what I mean by that is we took the original GPT-3, we did something called fine-tuning uh, reinforcement learning with human feedback, which we basically took the model and we showed the model examples of what we call instruction following. We showed the model what it's like with like human-graded examples of what it's like to follow instructions. And that made these models like very approachable for the last year, companies have been building on it extremely successfully. We took it one step further in the creation of ChatGPT, where we built on that instruction following capabilities, and we taught the model how to be really good at dialogue, conversational dialogue. So between a you know a better model with the right user experience, which I think there's been such a negative stereotype of of chatbots for so many years now, this is the first time we have these like really conversational chatbots that are dynamic in their nature. They're not keyword driven. They're not, if you ask the right question, you get the right answer. It's kind of like very broad based. So it was like the right innovative UI coupled with the right models have now all of a sudden thrust a solution out there um, that you've probably seen the statistics that we shared. I think uh, I think we were the fastest to hit, you know, a million users. It was like four or five days right. that people had um, adopted the technology and it's only, you know, increased from there. I know this is maybe foundational for you, but it's also something we want to make sure, obviously, the students and our audience can understand. You talk about the pre-train and learning and conversational and getting to a million users. You talk just in more detail. Why was that so important to release it to the public, to get the feedback? How does that, when you're talking about reinforcement learning, how does that all work? And you're talking about deep learning. What is the deep part of deep learning? How does that influence ChatGPT? And what are the core reasons this was released to the public in that kind of context? 
Yeah. Um, you know, you could build everything you want in a lab. Right. But, you know, it's like, what's, right. the, what's the, uh, you know, what's the, the I'm going to butcher it, but like the football quote, like you could have the best first, you know, uh, best plan. Right. Best best game plan until, yeah. you know, someone punches you in the nose. Right. You know, or the Mike Tyson. Quote, yeah, exactly. You know, um, you know, yeah. like it's kind of the same way. Like you could have the best things in the lab where you're like, oh, based on all of our evaluations and experiments, stuff like that, this thing performs this well. And that's. That's exactly. like super important. That is the way the world works. But like until you get it in front of humans, like I jokingly say, like there's no bad models. It's actually just bad humans, right? Like how people, how they <laughs> choose to interact, right? If people just use the model exactly right. how it was intended, it'll probably work similar to your, what your evals in the lab told you. But when you get it in front of humans and you have different behavior, either intentional or unintentional, um, how people want to interact with these things. And I think what really clicked for chat GPT was you could literally converse with it, right? You could, like, right. it's like, let's say your learning style is like you like to talk through things versus reading stuff. You know, well, who's going to want to spend, you know, besides maybe like a parent, you know, or if you have like some amazing teacher who's going to spend three hours talking to you about something, here you could actually like talk to the model. And in this case, talking, you know, I mean, currently like typing, but like you can right. talk to the model and have a dialogue and ask questions, ask the model to quiz you. You can interact with it in a very dynamic way, right? It's it's extremely approachable and and near limitless. And then all of a sudden you find out that like, this thing can not only can answer questions, it can write code for you, it can explain code to you, it can do all these things, whereas like this endless, um, like endless entertainment. And I think people found it like a, like a rat hole they went down um, in it. And it was just like, I'd never seen something like this before when I could actually engage with a computer and it wasn't through like a, you know, a keyboard and mouse. And yes, you typed on the keyboard, but like it wasn't a static interaction. It was dynamic based on like what you wanted out of it. And I think, I think that's eye opening. And like, I jokingly say, like when my mom understands what I do, um, what my <laughs> day, what my job is like, you know, that you've crossed some chasm because this is, as I've sold some complex technology. This is by far the most complex in how it works. The fact that we've been able to, I'm gonna, I don't want to say dumb it down because it's not dumb, but make it accessible right. like, to exactly. all, all types of people is ironically what we've been trying to tell people for the last year. And it's just like the right UI where like a conversational interface, it's not the absolute interface for everything, but it is proving to be a really interesting interface for how you talk to computers. And there's still a benefit of like a you know drop down box and clicking on something when you know you're exactly looking for something, but being able to have clarity of thought of what you're looking to do to seek answers or seek information, compute. I almost feel like computers are like untapped from that regard because we use it in like very defined ways prior to this stuff. The, the use case that's been getting the most attention is through Bing and Microsoft and Search. Can you talk about how? that experience or particularly the visibility of that experience has impacted either what you're doing or just, Hey, talk about how that works. Exactly. You were talking about how the conversational interface can impact anything. Clearly a visible use case is being in search and then kind of what you see as the impact given the visibility of the Bing and search on open AI. Yeah. And I think that after chat GPT came out, I think the rumors, the rumors were swirling, you know, next generation Bing and that, this and that. And you know, it's interesting because they use the technology that is, you know, a, a you know, very much a cousin or derivative of of Chat GPT. I think everyone thought they were just gonna like 
bake it right in. They were very thoughtful um, in trying to take what they were already very good at. Although, you know, Google is the dominant leader from a you know, revenue and market share standpoint, people are surprised to learn like what a big business Bing really is and how it continues to grow. So um, Microsoft took um, our models uh, and then did some amazing things with it, enhancing it for their need, right? Training it to be good at what they needed to be good at, and then fusing it together as to what they part of what they call Project Prometheus, where they brought. Um, uh, and there's some good blog posts I can uh, share as Microsoft has now revealed yeah. some, some good info. So yeah. a couple links included in the notes um, around like what it is that they did here, but they basically fused their their Bing search infrastructure and what it did together with a conversational front end. Um, that allows you to have like very fresh, very current information that not only can it link back that information, but if you ask a question, you can get an answer and then have all that information um, supplementing it. And they have a couple different interaction paradigms. They have like a, a, a purely conversational chat one and then a more like traditional dynamic search, you know, that is powered by these models. And um it it's super interesting. I've watched a couple um, professors explore from an education standpoint. I think um, I, I think it's indicative of where of absolutely where things are going. I think it's also like you know the whole world is really experimenting with it and kicking the tires and trying to poke holes in it and stuff like that. It's been a um, it's been a really interesting learning. I think everyone you know has like positive and negative views. I view it as all like, this is all learning, right? How do people want to use these technologies? How do people want to use it in good ways? And how will people attempt to, you know, abuse it to, to, um, to, you know, make bad things happen? I think that's the, I think that's a reality with all this technology. And until we, in, until you get it in the hands of people, like you just don't know, you think, you know, but you, you don't know. So the, the Microsoft relationship is, is, is awesome. In fact, my day job now starting this new year is focused on the enablement of the Microsoft Azure team to sell the Azure OpenAI service, which is you know our same models but delivered inside of Azure. So Microsoft has tremendous trust with customers, relationships with customers, um, you know larger architectural capabilities with all of Azure to to couple together with OpenAI to deliver those outcomes that customers are looking for. So like I see them as, as a great partner and. You know, Bing is really like maybe the the part that everyone associates. But if you've looked over the last couple of weeks, Microsoft has done a whole bunch of like AI enablement of Microsoft Teams, of uh, Viva Sales, um, which is their CRM and sales solution. Um, they're infusing all of their products um, with AI capabilities. And then they're also giving birth to like AI native products that never would have existed before if it wasn't for these models. An example of that would be GitHub Copilot, right? Which is a plugin that goes into a um, an IDE or an integrated development environment if you're a coder um, that helps you write code by these models, understand you putting in natural language and it writing code for you. Um, so they have like all these different offerings. And then the cool part is everything they've built they offer you those same capabilities as APIs, so you can either consume their technology and buy it from them, or build something if you need your own version. So um, it's really interesting watching like a partner with like the heft and muscle, both from a development standpoint and a go-to-market standpoint of Microsoft, like take this technology, which is really kind of different than what OpenAI focuses on, where we're focused on a smaller number of customers that really want to go big and partner with us directly. 
I think that was a really good point about not just on Bing, but all the other applications. Because one of the things we talked about, and we want to connect this, and we will connect it directly back to sports, either through Microsoft or OpenAI directly. But one of the things we were talking about before we jumped on is OpenAI's new announcement with Bain and the new partnership potentially with Coca-Cola. And you mentioned before use cases where you're interacting directly on the front end with customers. So A, can you just talk about those relationships and B, how is OpenAI potentially impacting, particularly in a Coca-Cola perspective, the kind of front-end marketing that co- that's core to Coca-Cola's business. Yeah, that one, that was super excited to see that announcement come out, having been, you know, just a member of the team working with Bain over the last, uh, you know, I'll say better part of a year, nine months, whatever it's been. Um, it is like so exciting because the relationship with Bain started with Bain using the technology, right? There's nothing better with a partnership when someone sees the value internally. And, and while I won't discuss their, their use cases, that's for them to discuss, like, they were doing some like really significant stuff that would impact how they ran their business, right? It wasn't some like, let's go find some corner case where we can say we did it and, it, it, and you know, it wasn't real. So they really leaned in and that gave us like a tremendous amount of confidence in their ability to execute. And if you look at like the banes of the world, like they have tremendous market access to senior leadership of customers. And this is, you know, my view is everyone's been talking about digital transformation for the last five or whatever years. Like I like passionately believe that like this type of stuff, this open AI and other generative AI technologies, I believe that that is going to usher in the, the real digital transformation, or it's not about just like a mobile, you know, mobile app or a mobile optimized website or ordering online or, you know, food delivery or mobile first or whatever. All those things are foundationally very important. But I think like a true like end-to-end digital fabric um, is going to be built. And I have like a I have like a saying, you know, like everyone in the famous Mark Andreessen quote of the last decade of software is eating the world. Like I believe like neural networks and large language models are the new wave of that where they're going to eat software, right? Where you're going to have yeah. features of software that are going to be models. Right. And yes, you're still going to have a UI around and there may still be a database that's traditional software, but the value is not going to be hard coded with a bunch of if then statements. It's going to be these dynamic models that process things. And that is um, that is truly transformative. So if you're going to have an executive conversation, if you're going to you're going to work with Coca-Cola, like you need to be able to deeply understand their domain and understand their business. And and entities like Bain are like super well-suited for that. They're doing that already. They've been doing business process optimization and strategic consulting for a long time. This is just the next wave of that. It may be on steroids. Um, so, so those types of partners are critical. We can't we, if even if we wanted to, I don't know that we have like the permission OpenAI directly with all these customers. They want to, they they buy a certain way, they interact a certain way. We need scale, and they take they bring scale and expertise to not only consult but to deliver. Because ultimately, you have to turn these ideas into usually like a software interface that someone can use. And uh, the announcement with Coke, I think, is one of you know one of many that you're going to see. Um, and it's it's super exciting when you have obviously someone like Coke who's going to um, just begin to use this stuff um, in a marketing and a content generation standpoint um, and a whole bunch of you know areas in that space. And I think that will be the start of things, right? Um, and it's really about finding that first place to start. Yeah, I think is the key thing. I right? find that first use case where you can prove like the plumbing works, water flows, and um, and that this AI stuff is like um, not only powerful, but it's like safe to use. And we actually understand what it does. 
Um, and that's how I always start with a customer. Like, yeah, you'd love to, even the ones that want to go build big, the reason they're ready to go build big is because they started small and did some early proof of concepts and they may have done those a year ago. They may be ahead of the curve, but like those things need to happen for organizations to get comfortable with like both the, the power um, as well as like the upside and the downside of like these dynamic models right. that can do stuff, right? It's not static. So um, that they need to go on that journey and, and organizations like Bain are like, I feel like lucky to be able to partner with them because they just have a certain level of access and permission with customers. Core to sports partnership specifically, which is obviously an area I focus on is content marketing. Well, content marketing, engaging with customers in the Coca-Cola example, or maybe in a sports more generally example, or partnership more generally example. How, how does that work when you're saying that you're testing the plumbing, you're testing the use cases? How is that actually working and how are companies like Coca-Cola actually putting this to work to test the plumbing, so to speak? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's identifying some, you know, some use cases. I, I think, I think a lot of the early use cases in the generative AI space are um, going from zero to one, right? Yeah. Like how do you envision idea? Like you have an idea, you have a seed of an idea and how do you like straw man that, that out, right? How do you, how do you take a concept where, where there's creativity involved and maybe your creativity is not what is traditionally associated with creativity, which is like going to grab a pen and going to, you know, draw something or write something. If you can actually talk to a model and explain, Hey, I had this, I had these three or four bullet points. Like, can you help me create like a, an elevator pitch for something? Right. Or can you create, put text in and get an image out to go with an idea that you had, where maybe before you would have to look for some clip art, or you had to buy something like that gr that ground level, I first saw that in working with uh, some of the very large media and advertising companies who all have like mood boards and ad lob process, right? Ad like object process. They had all this stuff where it's it's really like their business is going zero to one and and pitching customers on large volumes of ideas um, in different domains. And this is like giving them like literal superpowers to go do this stuff kind of either at larger scale or making the cost to experiment like much, much lower because uh, you're empowering individuals to do things in self-contained. You didn't need to have the copy, the person who wrote copy do their stuff and then go over to the art department who'd crank something out. You have all these tools that enable individuals to, to do stuff and create, um, you know, create some compelling stuff. And I think the like one of the verticals where this technology was first adopted and broadly, broadly adopted was in the copywriting space. People who mm -hmm. took our models, which are very good at generating content, and they put compelling user experiences on top of it to guide what people needed. And there's many, many companies that are that sit on top of the open AI models. They add their value on top that are focused in copywriting. Some are focused on fiction. Some are focused in, in, in different areas. But I think that space proved it out where you had marketing departments um, that would go pay for these third-party tools that use OpenAI under the covers, would pay for these tools that their teams could then go use to generate stuff. I think that is still a very good business. I think that will continue for a long time. And even that's that's evolving as the interface evolves to be a, right. a conversational front end to AI generation. Right. Not just, it's like a fusion of a fusion of both. And then you have people that like they want to own their own business process, and thus they're like, we need to custom build something. 
right? We have our own right. custom workflow. And whether you're writing code or you're using like low code, no code technology, like whatever it is, stitching something together that maps to like what a given business process is. And I can give you some examples if you want, like that becomes critical. And that's what enterprises do, right? They have bespoke business processes versus um, maybe just like a marketing department that needs to do some, you know, base level uh, creative stuff. So building out those like end to end processes is, is, is where like the intersection of the value that Bain is going to deliver to a Coca-Cola is helping them envision those end to end flows. The technology itself is just technology. It's like, how does it get applied? Yeah, and maybe that's a good place to transition into. You mentioned how you were at the MBA Tech Summit over All-Star Weekend in Salt Lake, some of those use cases that you talked about and some of the things you were exploring. Can you talk about, hey, why did you decide to go? Obviously, given all the different areas that you're looking into, how do you see the use cases applied in a sports context? And what are some of the takeaways you got from either the Tech Summit or your time talking to sports decision makers? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was uh, invited by the NBA, which is always uh, super cool. Um, and we work with, we've <laughs> been been working with them for a, for a little while right now. And I think actually, what's interesting about the NBA, Mike, my, my perception is it's um it's like actually like very balanced, right, between the league, the owners, and the players, right? Like the players have like a tremendous amount of. Uh, um, equity and balance in the relationship where, you know, in other sports leagues, the teams kind of rule the roost, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's really interesting, really interesting dynamic. And, uh, um, you know, I, as the first time I had gone, the, the tech summit was, um, was really, really interesting just with the caliber of people they had there and the, the mixed, um, the mixed perspectives of owners and players and, um, um, streaming companies and cable companies and like the whole mix there um, was was super interesting. Um, and I think if you like look back, um, like, you know, it's interesting because I think if you look back like a year or two ago, everything was about, you know, crypto and NFTs and all this mm -hmm. other stuff. And um, um, I actually think NFTs and sports actually fit them. I think there's actually I actually think there's a lot of applicability there um, where I think some industries like I, I don't get it as much. And I actually think like blockchain as a technology paired with NFTs in that space, actually, like there's something very legitimate there where some maybe some other industries I roll my eyes, like like what problem are you really trying to solve? But I think between now and then um, and as the crypto, the crypto world, maybe separate from the blockchain world, but as a crypto world has kind of you know had a bit of a rough patch um, in the emergence of AI, it is kind of thrust forward. I think what people realize is that AI is like extremely actionable. It's not a, it's not hype. We're not trying to create a new currency. We're looking to allow you to very quickly start to um start to deliver value. And I think what's really interesting in leading up to this, like I joke, like each week there's like two or three different announcements of companies announcing integrations into our our technology. So in many cases, like we hit the ground, um, we hit the ground running. So you know when I look at the when I look at sports leagues and sports teams, like without getting into um, specifics and specific conversations that probably wouldn't be appropriate to share here, like you have you have you know leaders and followers, right? There are teams that have invested heavily in analytics. You know that. Um, you know, and they're not all like that, but there are teams that have invested deeply in analytics and passionately believe in it, not just from analyzing players and performance of players and who they sign and who they draft. That is, you know, that is foundational to the business, but how they financially evaluate their partnerships, how they, um, you know, how they uh, 
use their data strategically, right? Everyone's been talking about how data is the new oil, and it's like, no, good data is the new oil. It's not just data for the sake of data, right? People who put that foundation in place to actually go quickly here, and and those conversations were the most the most interesting because you have people who are like on the precipice of doing some really interesting things, and then it actually, you know, there's you know the how the teams and the leagues and the players work. Uh, together and who leads and who follows, um, you know that, you know that's to be sorted out. But I think when you look at when you look at the work that like the NBA and actually ironically and not intended to be a plug, but like what the NBA and Microsoft, who's a big sponsor, like the mobile app and right. the whole streaming experience is all Microsoft powered. Like the partnership that they have there already in building this really cool, really compelling, very fan friendly app. There are a lot of views of like what AI could potentially do to enhance that experience or take it in different directions and and such. So it's a it's a great intersection of uh, the fact that Microsoft has a great proven partnership already um, and our ability to kind of do the work that we were doing independently and now bring that together um, to actually solve problems that are like are well understood and the partners are in place to do it. We're getting towards the end, and we do want to ask a couple more questions on top of that. But one thing you said, different views of what the fan app could be and how it could leverage AI or open AI specifically. Can you just provide just at a high level what those different views would be or what those use yeah. cases would be? So, so I'll I'll take a step back from speaking specifically about you know any sports thing, but just in general, there's a recognition that a conversational front end gets really interesting. And whether that is a conversational yeah. front end for employees to get access to their own information, or that is um, to fans or customers or whatever domain, making stuff more accessible. Um, I think that that is a trend that is gonna be really, really interesting because ultimately people are seeking answers, right? Yeah. And if you're seeking an answer, you have a question you ask. And if you can, ask the question and I'll have to format it into some funky search query, but you could actually, you could naturally, natural language type it or eventually speak it. I think it's what everyone wanted Siri or Alexa to be, but it never, never really got there because the technology was, is just, is just challenging. And I think being able to put that type of front end on things is actually going to, um, is going to transform things. Um, and then if you go back to my kind of like, you know, next gen business process optimization versus magical end user experience, that conversational front end is where the, the end users feel the magic, but tapping into the unique data sets that companies have, that's like the, the, the magic happens there, right? It's really like, what do you have? Like, like if you're a sports league, you have all these statistics, you have all this information that if you can expose it to, uh, to your fans or your customers in the right way, all of a sudden, like it starts to get really interesting in the ways that they interact with you. And it's not like they just go to your website and do something transactional. Right. Like, how do you make them want to come back? Because they actually like, wow, this is like super cool. And you start to just, poke around at things. I, I think that's a huge opportunity. 
yeah. you know, what we talk about fan engagement, customer engagement, actually engaging where you have people actually engaging with your content in the ways you're just describing is obviously one of the holy grails potentially in sports and not just sports and business more generally. Again, there's a lot here and we probably will have to have you back to go through all of it because there's a lot thing. And obviously things will change as this continues to be, obviously it's a very new technology that continues to iterate and get better. But on that note, you mentioned, you've talked a lot about the positives and what generative AI or open AI can do. But you also have mentioned limitations, Sam and the open AI, open AI leadership team has been open about some of the limitations. So from your perspective, given where things are now, and given that it's still definitely very early stages, what are some of the challenges or limitations that people should be thinking about when they're thinking about this technology, particularly in its early stages and early adoption period? Yeah. I mean, so we have like, we have an amazing, and I, I, I say, I say this like truly meaning it like a world-class trust and safety team. So whether it's trust yeah. and safety or responsible AI, that kind of whole domain of Who's thinking about all aspects of not only how people interact with the models, but the potential bigger picture picture economic impact or providing perspectives of like, like, we believe this stuff needs to be regulated at a certain point and like, but how do you do that in the right way, right? It's not... Um, you know, it's not like our political leaders have like deep, deep understanding of that, right? So, so working with, you know, working with them, um, I think for, for us, like the, the, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, right? You're releasing yeah. this extremely powerful tool. What's the right way for it to enter the world? You'll have some people, and I think this, you know, there's, I think politics figures into this too. Some people are like, just give me the model and, you know, I'll go do with it what I need. And yeah, more like a pure free right. speech thing. But if you don't do these fine tuning things to make it good at following instructions or good at dialogue, the model is actually not nearly as approachable or valuable. So um, when ChatGPT was put out there, like we put a bunch of guardrails on it. It's not that people can't find their way around it, um, you know, but it's more about like making this thing that it stays aligned with what humans intended to do, which is really Right. All of this effort is around alignment, right? Like, what are the humans trying to do? Sometimes humans try to do bad stuff as well. So you got to have guardrails that like, hey, it could generate code, but like, you know, you don't want this thing to be weaponized that they can go, you know, that their people are actively going to generate malicious code. You know, you say like those, you have those types of things. I think there's some views that, you know, chat GPT, um, you know, that shows biases one way or another. I'm like, look, the model's not woke, whatever that means, right? The model is trained on massive volumes of information yeah. from the internet. Um, and, you know, in some cases reflects our society. Maybe people don't always want to hear that, but um, Sam, our CEO, um, and this is not an easy research problem, but something that's deeply focused on is like, once we get these models good enough, how do we start to provide, as I'll call them, kind of nerd knobs, where you can have the model maybe align more with your point of view, right? Where you can you can provide the model some information, and whether that's like a drop-down checkbox or you describing to the model, perhaps like right. like how you view the world in some cases, and let the model, if it's going to be like an assistant for you, if it's going to help you. Um, you know, personalize it for your needs. I think there's pros and cons of that because I think with personalization comes, you know, blinders and echo chambers and stuff like that. But I think ultimately our goal is to give the power back to the people um, to control that. But it's also like you got to get there first. You got to like make the technology work first. Um, 
in its core function before you go putting constraints or flexibility and stuff in that. And I think that's where um, we are in the journey right now. I think the fact that Chat GPT, which is rapidly approaching three months of being out there, it's still holding strong, right? Like it's still yeah. like people are still continuing to find value in it. Um, it hasn't really gone off the rails. Can people get it to do things? Yes, but that's more of what people are doing versus like the model is doing. So um, it's a constant journey. And as these models get more and more powerful, like um, like there's a tremendous amount of responsibility on open AI, right? Like we may build a model that we determine we're not gonna release because it's too powerful or it has certain characteristics and stuff like that. So um, that's like super top of mind, like trust and safety, alignment with humans, overall responsible AI, like that is so, so critical. And I honestly think, again, going back to like where we started as a salesperson, that's what enterprise customers need, let alone like what we're trying to do in the macro sense. We need this for the technology to, to get there, but you need uh, enterprises, you know, there's brand risk for them. They have to feel that there's a partner who is putting everything they have into making this safe for like a Coca-Cola to to trust to have this be associated with them. Obviously, the, all the things you just talked about in and of itself could be its own podcast. I know we're really short on time. So we want to ask you the final question we ask uh, all of our podcast guests, which is you're a senior leader at OpenAI. Um, we have a lot of students who listen to the podcast who are trying to enter into their careers or start their careers. So from your perspective, what are you looking for when you're hiring people? What are kind of some of the traits that most resonate with you from a sales perspective or from a management perspective about some of the traits you're looking for when you're making hiring decisions? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's so there's so much to unpack there. I've never worked with such a talent density like I do uh, here. Um, yeah. Some like the smartest, these young, young, really smart people. It's, it's, uh, it's truly amazing. It's, it's like a complete, it's a complete honor and privilege. I think more than anything, um, there's like a, a, um, and it's what led me here. It was like a motivation, right? Like a, a drive, right? It was like very clear to me that this was going to be the future and I wanted to get in. Right. So I think you always just look for that. And I think that is as important as like what the person's track record and their skills are, right? Especially when you're earlier in your career, when you have less of a track record. I think like the reality of the world is like um, as a college student or a young professional, like learning how to code is really important. Like in when I was in the IoT world early on, um, I worked with a lot of these mechanical engineers, really, really smart people. But being and this was a decade ago, being a mechanical engineer was not enough. You had to know how to write code because that was how you were going to interface to the new systems. And although these new systems can write code for you, you need to know what you're asking the model to do and you need to be able to evaluate the output and human in the loop. It's not about, you know, all AI. It's AI with with humans. So I think having um having like a deep understanding and appreciation for how to code is going to be valuable what in whatever you do whether you're going to be on the sales side of things or you're literally going to be a practitioner of the stuff i think you know in the same way that software has been eating the world and these neural networks and large language models get the world like that is the world that you're in and how do you become fluid and i think if you look back now like every company is becoming a technology company all these Sports teams, in some cases, are even though it's sport, yes, they're a sports team or they're a sports league, they're a technology company. Um, and you need to like realign your thinking with that. How do you make that attractive? So, um, 
So I think that like the biggest advice I would give someone is like, go learn Python, right? Go, go to chat, go to free chat GPT and go ask it questions about Python. Like you'll go learn a bunch of stuff. Like that's the, that's the, like the baseline thing. Um, and then I, I'm always a big believer in like trying to have a view of where you think as an individual, you want to be in five years, which is like a mind numbing thing to answer. But if you think about what you think you want to do, you will at least take a somewhat directionally straight path there. You may curve in getting there, but absence of having a vision that you can explain, you're like a little weeble wobble where you'll you'll just look at the tips <laughs> of your toe, toes and you you may walk a while and get nowhere. So um, and you're I always tell people when I mentor them like you can change your mind. Um, there's no you don't have to be like that. I know the answer, but lack of a plan is not acceptable. You will hurt yourself. You need to have a plan because if you have a plan, you will go seek out the things to help you achieve that. And you have experience and you may find, wow, I don't want to do this. This is not what I thought it was, right? Wouldn't you rather learn that early on than, you know, go run hard at something and then you get there like, oh, wow, this is not what I wanted. So I don't know if that helps, but that was kind of, that's kind of some of the advice that I, that I give people. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that's great advice. You know, I think to your point about having a direction is helpful, particularly as you're looking to apply for jobs. And even as you're starting your career, pointing yourself in the right direction is a good place to begin. So Adam, you've been very generous with your time. We really appreciate it. Um, it was a great conversation. We learned a lot. We are going to have to have you on again, particularly given how fast this space is moving and its impact on the sports industry. But Adam Goldberg, thank you for joining the Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. Thank you for having me, Adam. Great to talk to you again.